Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, host of the channel, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Alexander Rag Morley, author of Aesthetic Science, Representing Nature in the Royal Society of London, 1650 to 1720, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks very much for having me. We're so excited to talk about aesthetic science today, but before we do so, Alex, could we ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you really reach the the topic of this book and and the area more generally? Uh, yeah, thanks very much for the question. I think it's uh, you know one that I can only answer autobiographically, a series of kind of haphazard coincidences and things like that. But, but what I would say is that the, the title of the book, Aesthetic Science really, for me, clearly encapsulates what I'm interested in. Um, I I have for a a very long time uh, been drawn, perhaps not in a very structured way, um, to questions about the interrelationships between our kind of sensory or emotional experience of the world and how that connects um, to the sciences. Um, Now, quite how that happened is a little bit of a mystery, um, except that I would say that I was, like a lot of people who grew up in the UK, I was forced to make an early choice between the kind of arts and humanities direction and the sciences direction. I I was equally interested in them um, at school, and at some point or other, I kind of had to make a choice, had to choose a direction, and I chose the humanities direction, and I chose to do a history degree because that was the strongest interest that I'd always had. But in the background, there was always a little dissatisfaction, a little kind of desire to kind of um, find myself back in a world that was a bit more connected to uh, the sciences. And my way back into a world that was more connected to the sciences started happening around the time that I did my master's degree. I did a master's degree at King's College London in early modern history with no notion that this would lead me in a sort of a scientific direction. Um, but I did some research project or other, I can't quite remember the context now. And I found myself reading a book by the um, 17th century language theorist and natural philosopher, John Wilkins, in which he was talking about the possibility of life on the moon. And he was talking about the presence of mountains on the moon. And he suddenly kind of came out with this line. I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but the idea has really stuck with me. He said, you know, words to the effect of, I know what you're all thinking. It's terrible that there are mountains on the moon, but let me tell you that mountains are actually amazing and and lovely. And I I really, this sort of blew my mind in a way. It's funny. It's, It's a strange thing, really. It's not a you know, you might say it's not a particularly important area of historical inquiry, but I just couldn't wrap my head around the idea that his anticipation of the reader's response was that mountains on the moon would 
sort of disfigure the moons or make disfigure the moon or make the moon somehow unpleasant or unbeautiful. And so really that sort of encapsulates the set of interests that I ended up pursuing in the PhD thesis, uh, where questions about science, in this case kind of you know space travel and geology, I suppose, were linked to questions about aesthetics. And from there, um, I quickly discovered that it was possible to do PhDs in the history of science, which was not something I knew at the time at all. Um, and in fact, I think throughout my whole progress for academia has been one of complete ignorance and a lack of understanding of how things work anyway. Um, but yeah, I found out you could do PhDs in the history of science. And in a way, I'd already found the topic that I wanted to work on, even though I hadn't quite understood that at the time. And it was really several years later, and not about halfway through the PhD, when I realized that, that was what I was really interested in, in thinking about. And so here I am, uh, much later, uh, with a book about aesthetic science. That's such an interesting progression that I'm sure echoes with so many um, uh, colleagues who've also been through that process of realization mm-hmm. um, as to their, their true academic interests and how they yeah. link together. And actually, in very, it's so so very much links um, also to, to the figures um, within the book, but we'll come to that mm-hmm. um, perhaps a little bit later. But as the title suggests, you know, my, the book really pivots around um, prominent figures within London's Royal Society. And quite a significant part of the contribution of the book is really it's calling into question a lot of the strands of thinking about the society that are dominating um, kind of recent and contemporary scholarship. And so with this in mind, I was wondering if just to start, you could perhaps give us a little background um, about the society and also this tradition of interpretation surrounding it Mm -hmm. for those who are perhaps, uh, you know, a little less familiar with the Royal Society of of London. Yeah, so the book is about um, the Royal Society of London in the period sort of just before its formal foundation. So the book uh, runs from about 1650 to, to 1720. The Royal Society of London is founded in 1660, although it's had a kind of a closet existence um, before then, an informal existence um, before that time. Um, and it's composed of uh, natural philosophers who and, and, and the the thing that they primarily agree about is that they think that the best way to produce knowledge about natural phenomena is through sensory experience, through experimentation. Uh, and that to us is a kind of fairly obvious claim to make. It's sort of, you know, one of the kind of foundational claims that scientists make today about how they work. Um, but at the time, it was in some respects a somewhat counterintuitive claim to make. Uh, and that was because the dominant um, epistemologies, the kind of dominant strategies, um, at least among philosophers, for obtaining knowledge about the world were not um, necessarily empirical. Um, there was a, a sharp distrust of the senses, a concern, an entirely legitimate concern that the senses lead us into error, that our senses can deceive us, that we can make mistakes through relying too heavily on the senses. I mean, a classic example, if you like, is the notion um, that the sun rotates around the earth. That's something that your senses show you. It's completely wrong, right? So there is, there is a, you know, that's a very a basic example, but there is a point to this. There's, there, is, uh, there are problems around the use of the senses in the production of scientific knowledge. Nevertheless, Um, the early members of the Royal Society of London share a commitment to producing knowledge about the world through the senses. And if you like, um, 
the place that these figures have traditionally occupied in the history of science, um, some famous names here, people like um, Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton, some names that are a little bit less famous today, people like um, Robert Hooke or the botanist John Ray, um, the place that they have tended to occupy in the history of science is as people who developed strategies for disciplining the senses in such a way that the senses can provide us with reliable insights into the natural world. Um, an example of that disciplining process is the way that they talked about and used language. They advocated the use of extremely plain and straightforward descriptions of natural phenomena, um, descriptions that would be somehow unbiased, that would somehow act as, shall we say, transcriptions of experience. Um, a, a use of language that would prevent people from allowing their presuppositions, their passions, their feelings from getting in the way of what they saw and experienced. Um, and the best way to think about this, I mean, I don't know what's going on at school these days, perhaps I should, but when I went to school um, and I had to write scientific methods, I had to write them in, a, in an extremely impassive way. I would use this kind of strange language, like the test tube was placed in the, you know, on the Bunsen burner or something like that, as though I wasn't present and as though my feelings weren't present. And, and the kind of standard claim that's made about the contribution of the early royal society is that this way of talking about experience and this way of um, disciplining experience emerged at the time. Um, and of course, this is something which has come under huge pressure from historians in the last um, 40, 45 years or so now, um, for, for, for very, very good reasons. Um, and I'm sure many of um, our listeners will know that one of the, the kind of um, most important arguments that's been made against fact claims come from historians uh, Simon Schaffer and Stephen Shapin, they wrote a book called Leviathan and the Air Pump, which came out in 1985. And what they tried to do is they tried to show was this way of organizing experience wasn't simply a kind of neutral, natural, scientific way of talking about the natural world, but in fact reflected the political presuppositions of the Royal Society's early members, the type of society they were trying to create, the type of ways of life that they wanted to instantiate through their scientific practice. Um, in other words, um, I might bust out a little bit of technical vocabulary here, but I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Please do. In other words, they claim that um, instead of having kind of scientific objectivity, at the foundation of these knowledge-producing practices, you have a form of intersubjectivity. You have a group of people who are choosing to align certain forms of experience with each other and choosing to agree that those forms of experience represent a truthful way of reckoning with the world and that the language that they use to describe those experiences is an accurate way of describing their experiences of the world. Okay, so there's this notion that um, what, were, what, were, what the early Royal Society actually did was it organized itself um, politically in order to produce, shall we say, um, an agreed account of what the world is using kind of highly specific rhetorical forms of language to accomplish that. Now that's that's all quite well known. Um, and it's really, really important to understanding what I wanted to do in my book. 
because if it's true that um, scientific knowledge depended on a form of intersubjective experience on people coming to some type of agreement about the meanings of their sensory experience of the language they use to describe it. I, I, I felt that there was space, should we say, for talking about intersubjectivity in a different way, for thinking about um, sensory experience more directly. In other words, yeah, we now know that this group of natural philosophers, people we would call scientists, wanted to align their experiences with each other. But, but how did they do that? You know what I mean? Like what was actually at stake in claiming that you have experienced the world in the same way as another person or that you are experiencing the world in a different way to another group of people? In other words, a history of intersubjective science needs to be a history of experience itself. And that's something that I I bang on about in the book quite a lot. And I think it's really important, but it's strange to me that there are very few histories of the empirical sciences a form of science premised on experience, right, that take experience seriously as a category of analysis. We have a lot of stuff around experience, but not a huge amount of stuff trying to tackle experience directly as a category of analysis. So if you like, what I try to do with a book is move from sciences, political and therefore intersubjective, to what are the experiential claims that are being made about that intersubjective science and how in practice is this intersubjectivity accomplished? And so then you're kind of really looking at this role of the senses in, in knowledge production. You start then kind of the book by <laughs> looking at the role of physical theology um, in 17th and early 18th century um, England in particular. And you look at how figures, people like John Ray, who you've already mentioned, and Robert Boyle, people like Nehemiah Grew, so another really important uh, member of the society, how they're variously interacting with this doctrine. I was wondering then if you could tell us a little bit about what exactly this strand of thinking is, this physical theology and why it's so very important for the individuals Mm. of the early royal society in thinking about the senses and thinking about knowledge production. Great, thank you. Um, And it's funny, isn't it? Because so far I've sort of, I framed the book largely in theoretical (laughs) terms. I haven't sort of avoided so far engagement with what people were saying and doing in the 17th century. So perhaps this is also another way of um, introducing introducing the book, a more, a more contextual, more historical way of introducing the book, because the first two chapters of the book really um, talk about something called physico-theology. Physico-theology is a type of theology that emerges um, in Northern Europe, particularly in England, in the second half of the 17th century. And it is the use of, shall we say, empirical scientific evidence to demonstrate the existence and attributes of God. Um, And if, for for most modern people today, if you've encountered anything like physical theology, it's probably something like creationism, okay? The idea that instead of a theory of evolution, we have this idea that God designed the world um, in such a brilliant way, and that's the only way we can explain why natural things are so shall we say, excellently adapted to the purposes that they have. So, you know, um, you can use evolutionary theory to explain why bees are so very good at getting uh, nectar out of flowers, or you can say that both flowers and bees were designed brilliantly 
in order to make that, that happen. And, and the claim which um, many natural scientists uh, put forward in the second half of the 17th century is that design is the reason why the natural world is the way it is. Um, and I would hope that, you know, uh, if you've been listening carefully, um, you might see if I think something odd. You know, I, I sort of said, oh, the, the history of empiricism needs to be a history of experience. And now here I am talking about theology. Um, and my response to that would be to say that theology in the 17th century is an incredibly important part of how people, particularly learned people, experience the natural world, right? There's a sort of a, a sense in which you can't, avoid, you can't avoid questions, metaphysical questions, questions about the existence and attributes of God, questions about the experience of God, if you seriously believe that God is the designer of the world and that, that God created all the things that you see around you. Um, to my mind, that colored um, people like Robert Boyle's experience of the world in meaningful ways. And, and I should digress a little bit here because the standard claim, and it is an accurate claim, but the standard claim that tends to be made about the emergence of physical theology in the second half of the 17th century is that it's an apologetic discourse, that it's something that a number of members of the early royal society do because they need to convince the people around them that they are not atheists. Why would anybody think that they're atheists? The reason why that somebody in the 17th century might think a scientist like Robert Boyle is an atheist is because he is putting forward um, what's called a, a mechanical account of how the natural world works. Essentially, his account of, of um, physical causation is based on, on the notion that tiny particles of matter interact with each other in mechanical law-like ways. And that's how you can explain most of the phenomena around you that you see. Um, that, that set of arguments has an incredibly long atheist heritage. Um, it comes from the ancient Greek thinker Epicurus as a key source, and he explicitly advances um, an atomistic account of the world in order to discredit the idea that the gods are involved with the world. So there is a problem that members of the early royal society confront, which is that they're using a hypothesis which has atheist implications. And so it is true that they need to get this physical theological argument out there. They need to get this design argument out there in order to demonstrate that they're not atheists. And in fact, some of them are, by 17th century standards, atheists, although not the ones I deal with. Um, <clears throat> so that's all true. That's all out there. That's important. But... What I tried to do in the book was I tried to show that notwithstanding the apologetic function of physical theology, even though it is designed to deflect accusations of atheism, it also reflects in a meaningful way how members of the early royal society, the, the, the religious ones, how they experienced the world. And it also had an impact on how they did their science. In other words, the notion that the world was designed by God did actually impact the ways that they investigated the world. So it's an apologetic discourse. It's designed to deflect accusations of atheism, but it's also a lot more than that. It, it, it actually plays a meaningful role 
in their scientific practice. And so there are books, popularizing books by, by people like John Ray with titles like The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation. And it is true that those are not particularly deep scientific texts. But one of the things that I show over the first few chapters is that, in fact, the vision of the world that that text reflects the vision of a world as the creation of a divine designer is something which you can then actually find being put into practice when members of the early royal society investigate natural phenomena scientifically. And it's interesting because in so doing, you present these, you know, quite well-known figures to, to you know, many people who work on, on early modern um, kind of science and, and in Britain especially, you know, people like Robert Boyle, for example, he's not really the Robert Boyle that people think and know of, you know, the Boyle of the air pump, because you're looking at them from this very, very different perspective. And I was wondering if you could speak perhaps a little more to perhaps almost a, an objective within your own research about, you know, finding these kind of threads and looking across these different um, aspects of, you know, the history of science, which has really looked at these individuals as kind of scientific practitioners mm-hmm. and trying to really feed in more of that um, kind of religion and that that weird separation that we've imposed upon um, this kind of period, that separation between theology and um, science that we experience much more in our kind of contemporary discussions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that it's interesting because um, aesthetics as a sort of philosophical discourse has actually played a really, really important role in the separation between science and theology over the course of the 18th century. And it's important to speak carefully as well, because there were important differences between natural philosophy, the investigation of nature, and theology, the, the attempt to produce knowledge about God in the 17th century. But nevertheless, I've always been intrigued by the connections between science and theology and other discourses. And I've been convinced from the the research that I've done that there's more to be said about the links between religion, science, aesthetics, and other discourses and practices that I'll talk about um, later on. And I do think that one of the problems that we have as inhabitants of a completely different conceptual world is it's very difficult for us to ask the right questions of material produced by 17th century scientists because we're so used to talking in binaries or dichotomies that simply didn't make sense in the 17th century. So, you know, one of the challenges I had writing the book was how do I stop talking about religion and science as if they're two completely different things. I found it very, very different because I have these kind of habits of language, habits of um, thought, which instantiate those separations constantly. Um, There's some very good work by the historian of science and religion, Peter Harrison, I think, which gets to the nub of some of these issues and provides us with some good languages for, for for talking about the different ways in which science and religion were similar to or different from each other in the 17th century um, compared to today. And I would say that the fundamental similarity between science and religion for somebody like Robert Boyle or Robert Hooke or John Ray was that, in fact, theology and natural philosophy, the disciplines that they were trading in then, were both disciplines that aimed at producing some type of knowledge. Okay, Faith did play a role in their ideas about religion, but they thought it was possible to produce religious knowledge. 
to a degree of certainty that paralleled the degree of certainty that they could accomplish about a large range of natural phenomena. And in fact, there are some really interesting overlaps between their ideas about the type of certainty you can have about God and the type of certainty you can have about the existence of micro-mechanical particles that you can't perceive, but which they thought were the kind of basic agents of physical causation in the world. So there are some really interesting parallels there, but I think it involves getting over some of the kind of inherited patterns of thought we have that just don't make sense for talking about the period. Um, And there are other binaries as well that I try to deal with in the book because it's a book about science and religion. It's also a book about art and science, and it's a book about literature and science. And in the end, the reason why I called the book Aesthetic Science was firstly because I wanted to avoid the and. I wanted to avoid, here's a book about art and science. Here's a book about literature and science. Here's a book about religion and science. But I also wanted to find a conceptual category that would enable me to talk about the disciplines in a way that made sense from the 17th century and early 18th century perspective. Uh, A time when it was possible for aesthetics theology, the neurosciences, rhetoric, all to be implicit in how scientists experienced and investigated the world. It's interesting how these small words have big consequences, (laughs) um, uh, especially when we come to book titles. But that's a different question for another day. Um, Let's move on to talk about um, Stonehenge and snowflakes, which um, listeners, please bear with us. It makes sense in a second. Um, these are two really important topics of scientific, but also just kind of more general debate um, in this period. And it's they're so important, in fact, that they they even feature on the cover of your book, which mm-hmm. I believe has an image that you yourself have designed. Um, and it's it's hard to explain um, in, for, for <laughs> in a purely audio format, um, but it's a wonderful kind of um, kind of superimposed uh, schematic of of Stonehenge um, with a with a snowflake. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little about what is linking these two, uh, you know, seemingly disconnected elements of, of discussion together within the context um, of the Royal Society and this especially kind of experiential um, dimension of, of their um, uh, kind of thought. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I mean, the 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 if you like the idea for the book cover was mine, although it was done by a good friend of mine. Um, Lan Lee, who's at um, Rice University in Texas now. Um, and as, as you say, what it does is it shows a 17th century map of Stonehenge with a modern image of a snowflake imposed over the 17th century map of Stonehenge. But there's, there's more to say. It takes a little bit of time to explain, but it's worth staying in for the long haul because I think the payoff is, is really interesting. So what we've been alluding to so far is the third chapter of the book, Um, and it compares 17th century attempts to understand the design and meaning of Stonehenge with um, Robert Hooke's attempts to understand the design and meaning of snowflakes. And it turns out the Stonehenge and snowflakes have something very important in common, which is that Stonehenge famously is a ruin. And Robert Hooke thought much less famously but snowflakes were ruins as well. So let's pull back and try to understand what's going on here. Um, The the chapter starts by talking about um, a 17th century debate about the origins of Stonehenge. Who built Stonehenge? What was it for? 
Um, one man came up with a kind of weirdly confident answer to that question, and that man was um, Inigo Jones, um, a name that I'm sure um, many listeners will be familiar with. Inigo Jones was sort of the first thoroughly classical architect um, working in England, um, building sort of uh, buildings in the Palladian style, like the Queen's House at Greenwich and the Banqueting House on Whitehall in London. Um, and he weighed in to the debate about Stonehenge, and he claimed that he could work out precisely who built Stonehenge and why. He claimed that Stonehenge was a Roman building and that it was a temple dedicated to Uranus. Now, not that many people bought into Inigo Jones's ideas about Stonehenge, it's true, but they did take them seriously. And some of the other um, arguments that were put forward about Stonehenge were, were no less fanciful, shall we say. Um, but what I'm interested in, what I was interested in was um, Inigo Jones's procedure. Inigo Jones claims that um, Stonehenge is based on a hexagonal plan. In other words, if you look at Stonehenge from the sky, you can draw hexagons onto, or you can draw a hexagon onto that plan, a hexagon inscribed in a circle. And he says, as soon as you know that Stonehenge is hexagonal, that proves to you that it has to be a work of classical architecture, that it has to be the work of a Roman architect. And then all you need to do is you need to look at other examples of how Roman architects work, and you can figure out fairly rapidly how this building was originally intended to look, uh, what it was originally intended to do. That's really interesting. The argument's completely circular. It's hexagonal, therefore I know it was built by the Romans. And because I know it was built by the Romans, I know that even though it's ruined and it doesn't quite present as a hexagon, that is what it must originally have been like. And, and the ruinedness of Stonehenge plays a really important role in the argument because he says, you know, okay, so it's not hexagonal now, but it was, and it's it's changed over time because that's what happens to ruins. Okay, so that's that's Inigo Jones's contribution to the debate about Stonehenge, and um, I found it really really instructive as an example of thinking about the activity of, should we say, a, a designer working in a more or less classical way. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that when Robert Hooke encounters snowflakes he discovers a very similar issue. He, he, Robert Hooke famously argues in, in his book, um, Micrographia, which was published in 1665, he argues that when you put natural phenomena under the microscope, they get more beautiful, they get more perfect. But subjecting natural phenomena to magnification reveals them as God intended them to be seen in the first place. And so what he likes to do is he likes to take really gross stuff like sort of lice and fleas and what have you, exposes them to magnification and says, hey, presto, they're really beautiful now. Um, and it's only because we exist in a kind of fallen state that because we were chucked out of the Garden of Eden, um, but we can't perceive them in the way that they were meant to be perceived. And then he looks at snowflakes. He catches snowflakes on the brim of his hat, looks at them under the microscope, and is a bit disappointed to discover they're not that beautiful at all. And this is obviously a problem because his theological presupposition is that divine design is so good that the more you magnify the product of divine design, the more beautiful it will become. 
By contrast, he thinks that if you look at the products of human manufacture under the, minus, under the microscope, they just get worse and worse and worse, revealing the faults in our designing capacity compared to the brilliance of God's designing capacity. So snowflakes do present um, Hulk with something of a problem, a theological problem, an experiential problem, because he's looking at snowflakes, he's not finding them as beautiful as he thinks they should be. And this might suggest to him that God isn't quite such a good designer as he thought. How does he solve the problem? Well, he argues that snowflakes are ruined, but they were perfect and now they're not. And if he could go up in the clouds and look at them at the point of their generation with a microscope, he would find that they were perfect. But because they've been kind of disturbed and damaged on their way down to the ground by the wind and what have you, they're less beautiful than they originally were. And this is not an empirical argument because it's not based on, on, shall we say, any kind of visual evidence that he has. I mean, it's empirical in the sense that he hasn't found them beautiful. It's empirical that he thinks they look kind of broken or wonky. But the supposition that they were more beautiful is not particularly empirical. It's based on an assumption about the designer at work, that this is a designer who can only produce really great stuff if he hasn't seen something great, he kind of has to deal with a problem. And, and he does that in a, in a way which is very typical of Robert Hooke. If you know Robert Hooke's work, that the gambit that I'm about to describe won't, won't come as too much of a surprise, is he freezes samples of his own urine, his, his, his own piss, and looks at that under the microscope and says, that's the most, literally, he says, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So transcendentally beautiful that I can't even represent to you how beautiful it is. And that this is what the snowflake should look like. This is, this is a kind of counterpart to the snowflake. And in, in the end, he sort of uses the urine crystal in the way that Inigo Jones uses um, examples of Roman architectural design. He says, this is what Stonehenge was like before it was ruined. This is what the snowflake was like before it was ruined. Um, and to me, and it's one of many other examples that you have in that chapter, to me, this was amazing because it showed to me that this... This theological presupposition that God has designed nature fed into an, an experiential idea, an idea about how nature should be experienced, that it should be beautiful, that it should cause some type of pleasure, that the absence of that beauty or pleasure might cause you to reconsider how you look at the world. Um, and that in turn feeds into the practices of scientific investigation, that the absence of a certain affect, a feeling, emotion, pleasure, might actually lead you to think, well, the object I'm looking at doesn't reflect the, the, its true nature, doesn't reflect its reality, but I have to re-examine it. Um, so there are other examples in the same chapter just showing um, natural philosophers encountering natural phenomena that seem to them to be imperfect and showing the kind of contortions and mental gymnastics they put them through, put themselves through in order to recover that object as once having been beautiful. And oddly enough, I didn't talk about it in the thesis, but this is where mountains come back, because um, in the um, 17th century, the end of the 17th century and early 18th century, there was in fact a debate about whether mountains were beautiful. 
with the same stakes, with the set of questions around, well, if they're not beautiful, does that mean that God put them here to punish us? Or are we looking at them in the wrong way? And if we look at them the right way, will we discover that they're beautiful and, and purposeful, useful objects? And this leads indirectly to the discovery of the water cycle. Uh, so it is, should we say, scientifically productive. But again, it reveals something different about these 17th century scientific practitioners. It shows the um, intricate ways in which they link scientific practices to aesthetic experience and to to metaphysics or theology, to ideas about the existence of God, to ideas about the types of entities that exist in the universe and, and how they interact. And we see so many of these difficulties and contortions coming up then later, in, so in chapters four and five, where you're really investigating the relationship um, between words and images, so coming back to this linguistic dimension, um, above all, with regards to natural history. And uh, an important figure that you focus on here is is John Ray, the naturalist mm -hmm. botanist. And I was wondering if you could you could tell listeners a little bit about Ray, as you mentioned before, he's he's perhaps not as, as well known as mm -hmm. some of the other figures. Um, and also about his views regarding the role of visual representation mm -hmm. and how this is really connected to his understanding of the senses, because it takes the book in a, in a slightly different tack um, yes. whilst picking up on so many of these, these themes that you've already mentioned. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean, I, I just left off by talking about this idea that a scientist like Robert Hooke expected to experience natural phenomena in a certain way, that he expected to be able to derive some type of, of aesthetic pleasure from them, and that not having that aesthetic pleasure could cause him genuine, shall we say, scientific problems. And the remaining parts of the book, what they do is they try to understand the nature of that pleasure, and it tries to piece together the strategies that natural philosophers use to communicate that pleasure to their readers. And one of the key arguments I make is that a certain type of embodied sensory pleasure is crucial to their understanding of how you need to experience the natural world in order to know it. But in other words, if you're capable of experiencing nature as a pleasurable object, you'll be capable of knowing more about it. And this runs you know, directly contrary to the stereotyped view I described at the beginning of this episode when I, when I said that the, the kind of main legacy that these people normally have for, this, for the history of science is the people who try to eliminate pleasure from science, people who try to turn experience in, into the most boring thing possible in order to prevent people from getting confused, in order to prevent people from imposing their, their presuppositions on the reality of the world. In fact, we have a, a group of people who are meaningfully committed to experiencing nature in a pleasurable way. And this leads me to John Ray. Now, John Ray, his primary legacy, I guess, is as a botanist. He also does works of um, ornithology. He um, has um, a huge amount of work towards the end of his life describing insects. And perhaps a better way of describing him rather than using those kind of modern scientific um, disciplines would be to say that John Ray was a describer and a categorizer of natural things. And what he tried to do was he tried to describe plants and animals, and he tried to group them together into uh, different categories. And so Ray, for me, is a really, really interesting test case because he's somebody who epitomizes 
the idea of royal society as a group who try to describe things in a plain, boring, realistic way. And what I found um, in examining his descriptive strategies as well as the descriptive strategies of other people around him was that his, his writing was, was full of poetry, but it was full of poetic strategies designed to elicit certain types of pleasure and mental relaxation from the reader, um, full of fascinating metaphors. Um, now, understanding those metaphors isn't a very easy thing for a modern reader to do, because I think for, for two reasons. Firstly, because most modern readers are actually not exposed to particularly intellectually elaborate theories of metaphor, um, there's that. And secondly, I don't think that we're quite equipped to understand the visuality of metaphors in 17th and early 18th century writing. This brings me to what I think of as, as, as an important, I think, theoretical intervention, which, which I'm going to have to digress here. I'll do my best to bring things back on track. But Digressions are always welcome. On the <laughs> always. <laughs> Thank you. Because um, in, in the history of science since, since sort of the mid-1980s onwards, um, there's been a huge shift towards work on scientific images. And, and some of that work is articulated around looking at the connections between art and science. Some of that work is articulated around the idea of technical images or epistemic images, images that are intended to kind of produce knowledge um, rather than, say, simply elicit pleasure or illustrate things. Although, obviously, the boundaries between those activities are not really very hard and fast. Now, the problem I have with a lot of this work, even though it's very, very useful and super interesting and and very formative for me, is that I tended to feel that there wasn't enough... um, should we say, intellectual activity going on, trying to work out whether our category of image maps onto early modern 16th, 17th, and 18th century understandings of what images are or can be. Um, and and there, you know, so, so in other words, I suppose my accusation would be that there's been a type of image fetishism, a tendency to assume that we know what early modern images are, that they're like the things that we understand to be images. And also perhaps sometimes a sense that um, images perhaps tell us more or or more transparent than words. John Ray is a kind of an interesting guy, getting back to John Ray, because most of his work is descriptive. It's verbally descriptive. He's not against images, but for a wide range of reasons, some of them philosophical, some of them uh, technical, really related to the cost of imagery production, he doesn't actually use very many images. He describes things verbally. But I think his verbal descriptions were images. For him, they served pretty much the same function and had the same mental effects as pictorial images, as the objects that we understand to be images. And, you know, if you read... um, a good deal of 17th century rhetorical and poetic theory, you'll find that this is actually a really standard position. But at the time, there are a lot of people, not, not everybody, but a lot of people who, who really believe that poetry and painting do the same thing and that the category of effects that they have on the mind are pretty similar in, in many, many respects. And if you then add a layer of, and look at the kind of type of... Um, the neuroscientific work that was going on 
in Ray's time and which John Ray certainly engaged with, you see similar types of claims being made. But words and images do something very similar to the mind and produce very similar categories of pictorial or sensorial representations in the mind. Okay, so for me, uh, and this isn't something that I expected to happen, but for me, engaging with a naturalist like John Ray, uh, you know, a respectable, should we say boring, solid figure in the history of science, for me, completely demolished my understanding of what images are and of of what the kind of uh, mental or neurological relationship we have to images can be, in fact. And that was really, really important for me. So I see John Ray and I see these other describers of the 17th century as people who made images, who, who made images that they expected to have a similar effect on the mind to pictorial images. And that if we really want to understand image making in the late 17th century sciences, we need to think very differently about the types of things images are or can be. And I would also add on, a, I guess, on a more personal note, that I think that, that thinking about images that way can also be really, really useful for ourselves today. That, that, that there's a sort of, shall we say, a, a folk psychological way of thinking about images and texts, which sees them as very, very different objects and that need not necessarily uh, be, be the case. So, yeah, John Ray plays an interesting role in, in the thesis because he's a describer, but I see in his descriptions vivid, affecting images which were designed to provoke a certain type of pleasure in the, in the reader, designed to provoke pleasures which are similar to the pleasures which were typically attributed to pictorial images. And to kind of pick up on that, you then move to discuss the cultivation of taste. Mm-hmm. So really linking into this idea of, of pleasure and, and how one responds to those um, particular stimuli. And, and you look at how this faculty enabled people like Ray and, and so on to, to really balance their ideas about objectivity and the role of the senses and put these kind of together in, in rational ways. And could you tell us a bit about maybe why taste was was really seen as so important to figures from the Royal Society? Because you have a, a slightly different take, um, I would say, to, to, to some other um, kind of writers on this topic. So it would be really interesting to hear a bit more about this and how these kind of manifested themselves um, mm. in their writings and their work more generally. Yeah. So so the, the, the last part of the book, as you say, is about, about taste, in fact. And again, Taste is not something that you would expect to find in a book about the history of science, because it, it ought to be the case, if you like, that if you're if you're seeking objective knowledge, if you're seeking to produce objective knowledge about the world, then taste is the last thing you want to be involved with, because as we all know, taste is extremely subjective. You can't argue about taste. One person's taste and another person's taste might be com- completely different. And when we do agree about taste, we often agree that this is a very subjective form of agreement. We sort of say, well, you know, okay, I agree and you agree that, I can't think of a good example, that Brancusi armchairs are tasteful. That's not a serious scientific claim to make about Brancusi armchairs or whatever. It's a very upper middle class example. Um, There we go. Uh, so the taste plays a really important role. And I think the way that I, I can best explain it is, is, is to start off with the concepts and then kind of work back into the history. So um, the, the argument of the book so far, if you like, has been that um, 
experiencing the world as a product of divine design plays an important role in the scientific practices of the early royal society. That experience is linked to certain forms of pleasure. Figures like John Ray, Thomas Willis, Robert Boyle want to communicate that pleasure to their readers. They want to ensure that their readers can experience nature as pleasurable. They are also keenly aware, uh, and this is something that they really talk about. You, you encounter it in, in books like John Ray's Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation. Robert Boyle talks about this in a number of contexts. Robert Hooke is essentially the, the, the gambit, the, the sort of conceptual gambit of, of his micrographia is if you don't find nature pleasurable, let me present you with this microscope, which enables you to find it pleasurable. Okay. So in other words, a surprisingly important, shall we say, discourse for early members of the early royal society is this question of whether or not you find nature pleasurable. And it's an epistemologically significant question because they link this issue, can you take pleasure in nature, to the question of whether you can produce knowledge about nature. Now, there's no doubt at all that this is a question of taste. It's not necess- They don't necessarily sort of stand up and say, this is a question about taste, let me start doing aesthetic theory. But in a kind of slightly subterranean way, that's precisely what they start doing. But they, they talk about taste and they talk about the problem What happens when somebody doesn't share your taste? What happens when somebody doesn't experience nature as pleasurable? And in the last chapter of the book, I argue that they devote a surprising amount of rhetorical energy to trying to turn their readers into people who will find nature pleasurable. That their descriptive strategies are designed not only to produce vivid and powerful images of the natural world, but are designed in order to produce readers into people who will experience those pleasures. Um, and this, this is something that takes place, um, if you like, through rhetoric, through a set of discourses which already exist in rhetorical theory about the effects of representation on readers and listeners. Okay, So there's a very, very well-developed set of discourses um, that, that Ray and Boyle and others engage with, which, which claims precisely that certain forms of rhetoric can change the reader's ability to find things pleasurable. So within within rhetorical theory, there's absolutely a discourse of taste going on. Um, But on top of that, um, the more recent works of neurophysiology works by people like Thomas Willis um, suggest that actually certain forms of powerful, vivid and pleasurable representation will literally change the fabric of the brain and nervous system. So with that change that's taking place, that idea of turning your reader into somebody who can take pleasure in nature, they think of this as taking place at a, at a, a very literal embodied level. Okay, um, This is also something you can read a lot in, in John Locke's work on education, this idea that it's better to teach students at certain times of day because their brains will literally be more receptive at some times of day than at others because of the temperature. Right, um, So... Yeah, that's, that's where, where taste comes in. And it's not quite taste as we understand it, because today, taste doesn't have kind of a, shall we say, a huge amount of metaphysical significance. You know, taste is a, is a hugely important marker of social distinction. Um, but in the 17th century, what's interesting is that a, f- a failure to take pleasure in God, right, is a failure to appreciate the true nature of the universe, 
So developing that capacity to take pleasure in God, whether through nature, through reading the Bible, and that's something that Robert Boyle is also very interested in, is the idea that the Bible should be a pleasurable book. Um, that's something that has very, very high stakes for your, for, your, for your spiritual well-being, for your understanding of the world, and as I also argue, for your capacity to, to make sense of the world, to produce accurate knowledge about the world. Um, so your taste is, taste is really, really important there. Um, and and this, is, this is taste as it's understood in the, in the second half of the 17th century and in the early, in the early 18th century. Um, and one thing I would say is that those scientific arguments, or shall we say, what should we call them, scientific, rhetorical, theological arguments about taste, actually go on to play a hugely important role in the development of aesthetic theory later in the 18th century. Um, and for those readers who are into Immanuel, those listeners rather, who are interested in reading Immanuel Kant, I mean, for me, the most interesting thing about Immanuel Kant's critique of judgment, right, which is, shall we say, the foundational text of European aesthetic theory, is that much of that book is a critique of physical theology, right? Much of that book is, is trying to disassemble the theories of aesthetics and taste articulated around physical theology in order to kind of like liberate aesthetics from the sciences. What does that imply? It implies that there was a time when aesthetics, aesthetic and scientific forms of judgment were, were deeply enmeshed and embedded in each other. And that's clearly the case in in works of, of people like Robert Boyle and, and John Ray at the end of the 17th and in the early 18th centuries. And then the book really finishes on um, a manifesto of sorts, we might <laughs> even call it, this kind of call for making these increasing links between the history of empirical science and medicine with aesthetics, as, as you've just mentioned, and art criticism. And, and really, I mean, looking at a much longer history, I mean, much of what the book actually does is call into question a lot of the chronologies um, that we've been working with in this regard. But I will leave people to read the book itself um, in order to, <laughs> to kind of really get the most from that, um, that uh, clarion call that comes at, at the conclusion. Um, we're running out of time. And um, Alex, I know that uh, you are a busy, busy person, especially at this time in the year. Um, so before we let you go, could I just ask you to, to give us an idea or a snapshot of what you're, you're working on or future projects um, that are in the pipeline? Of course. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for giving you the opportunity to talk at such length about the book. It's, it's interesting to hear what comes out. Interesting to hear how my ideas about the book um, change change over time. Uh, and uh, one thing I would say um, before I get into describing my, my, my future projects is this is actually, a, I describe a book in, in very conceptual terms today, but it is actually a very empirical book. You know, there's actually there's actually evidence in there. And I would encourage people who want there to read There certainly is. I can, I can to attest read, to that. To read some of that evidence. Somehow it came out very conceptual today. But what am I working on now? Well, two things. Firstly, I'm still really interested in this this set of questions around the around the relationship of intersubjectivity to the production of knowledge. In other words, the role played by getting people to agree about their feelings, about their aesthetic experiences, about their sensory experiences, the role that might play in the production of certain types of knowledge or expertise. And I'm I'm convinced that there's a really interesting story to be told about intersubjective knowledge or intersubjective expertise in 
the 18th century, a story that will challenge some of the received wisdom about the history of science in the 18th century, but a story I hope that may also perhaps help us to reconfigure today some of our presumptions about the nature of knowledge itself and the kind of thing that knowledge is when it enters our mind, if you like. And so I've been reading a huge amount of um, modern neurobiology lately um, to try to inform some of my thought processes. Um, But let me give you a little example of um, where the work is going. Um, I've just finished an article. It's it's just been sort of more or less accepted for publication. I have to make a few changes. Um, And it's about uh, an 18th century medical doctor called George Cheney and his patient, um, Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntington, and another woman called Susan Keck, who was also one of George Cheney's patients. Um, I was really lucky. I, I had a sort of archival find. I don't want a Christopher Columbus fist. Like the archivists knew that the letters existed, but the historians didn't. So I've Columbus did for the historians, but not for the archivists. Um, and I found some letters from Susan Keck to Selena Hastings describing her feelings about her treatment at George Cheney's hands, but also essentially as a sequence of letters Susan Keck trying to turn another woman, trying to turn Selena Hastings into her doctor. Uh, and so the correspondence, and this, is, this all takes place through correspondence, this is all medicine by correspondence, the correspondence between these three figures is really interesting because we have George Cheney arguing that he can cure his patient, Selena Hastings, because he has felt her symptoms, because he has experienced her symptoms. That's his claim to expertise. And it's really, really, really weird because Selena Hastings clearly has some type of issue, a kind of a, a, a probably vaginal problem, but certainly, should we say, in that area. Um, and it's really, really strange that this old man, much older than her, would sort of say, I've had that different part of my body, but I've had exactly the same disease as you. I've felt it in exactly the same way. That's how I, I know I can help. And and he's engaging in this constant rhetoric of trying to persuade Selena Hastings that her feelings and his feelings are alike. And it's really, really complicated, but it's really interesting to see how he's trying to establish this intersubjective agreement with her. Then when we look at the letters from Susan Keck to Selena Hastings, we see something else interesting going on. Susan Keck is, is basically going through the same experience. George Cheney's trying to persuade her that the two of them have experienced exactly the same thing. She's not buying it. She doesn't seem to be buying it. But she's convinced that Selena Hastings, a kind of woman of roughly a similar age and body experience lifestyle, she's convinced that Selena Hastings has experienced the same thing. And she's trying to turn Selena Hastings into her doctor on that basis. So we have three people who all seem to agree that intersubjectivity is the key here. But the only way they're going to get a cure for their malady is by talking to somebody who's experienced the same thing as them. But articulating that and persuading people of that's a really, really hard thing to do and seems to rely on these careful and difficult coordinations of embodiment, of gender, of social position, of habit, of, of lifestyle. So in a way, it's it's much less of an intellectual philosophical history than, than aesthetic science was, but I think it's pulling at some of the same threads, perhaps answering some of the questions better in a way. I said I wanted to write a history of experience. Well, 
here I am having another go writing about experience from another perspective, and I'm hoping something interesting will come out of it. I can certainly imagine that it will be interesting, uh, at the very least, if not um, probably uh, game-changing with regards to some of these debates. Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The book is Aesthetic Science, Representing Nature in the Royal Society of London, 1650 to 1720, by University of Chicago Press, published in 2020. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.